I've agreed for his more reputable newspaper, The Independent, to do a profile on you. One-on-one -on -one with Coach Lasso. Yeah, OK. The writer will be Trent Crim. Mm. And he's very good, and the supporters really listen to him. Oh, no, I know Trent. Yeah, he's a tough cookie. Really? Yeah, but that's OK. You know what you do with tough cookies, don't you? No. Dip them in milk. <laughs> <sighs> All right, let's run that new one. Hey, there he is. Hello, Coach Ted Lasso from America. Hello, Trent Cream from The Independent. <laughs> hey, excited to spend the day with you. It's gonna be fun. And please, call me Ted. All right, let's go! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Bucky, Bucky! Yeah, yeah, yeah! Wide open. Yeah. Oh, lucky fire! Yeah. Hey, Jamie, you gotta sell that run through hard, baby. Make the defense believe you. Watch, like this. Give me the ball! I want the ball! Give me the ball! I would like the ball, please! You know, make it a performance. I want you winning an Oscar at the ESPYs next year. What, you want me to run decoy? Yeah, that's right. It's a joke. Unfortunately for you, though, no one thinks it's funny. That true? Um, agree to disagree. I found it hilarious. I thought it was funnier than Step Brothers. Ooh, high praise. That scene where the bunk bed collapses. <laughs> I used to think that was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. But then I just saw that. And now I'm going to have to rethink my order of what I think is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Yeah, that's when sports and art combine, as far as I'm concerned. All right, fellas, let's run it again. Let's go. Cheers. Yeah, they're getting it. They're getting it. Interesting play, Ted. Did you come up with this? Oh, no, no, no. This is all cooked up by our very own Nate the Great. Who's Nate the Great? Oh, yeah, there he is. Someone's been walking the dog here. Found another poo. OK. What exactly does Nate the Great do? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what his title is. Hey, Coach, what is uh, Nate's job around here? Kit man. There you go, kit man. Do you mean to tell me you're entrusting a Premier League team's attack to the kit man? That young fella's forgotten more about this sport than I'll ever know. <laughs> Heck, might be a genius. Anything to add, Coach? Good kid. Boy, oh boy. You knew Coach Beard, you know what a big deal that was. You mean that, don't you? Whoa. Any Ted Lasso fans in the room? Oh, man. Three of you are willing to admit that you watch the show in church. Uh, they do swear a little bit, and it's a little hypersexualized, but it's a fantastic show. Uh, my wife and I watch it almost religiously. As I was thinking about what message I would want the eighth graders to hear, uh, what message that I would want to share with their family and friends who are here to celebrate with them Confirmation Weekend, I was drawn to this TV series, Ted Lasso. If you're not familiar with it, it uh, started in the early days of the pandemic, and it really was the right show at just the right time. A lot of people uh, fell in love with the, the silliness of this show uh, just kind of immediately. It, it became a bit of a phenomenon. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, Ted Lasso is an American football coach who gets hired to coach an English Premier League soccer club. Uh, Ted's coaching style is a bit unorthodox, mostly because he knows nothing about soccer. He's very humble. He will readily admit that he does not know very much about the game. And he's quick to give credit to people like the kit man, uh, Nate the Great, when they come up with uh, good plays or, or ways to add to the team. This reporter, Trent Krim, when he shows up, Initially, as he is observing the lasso way, as he's watching Ted coach this team, he initially is convinced that Ted is irresponsibly silly. 
that the team is going to be terrible, uh, the, the, the team is probably just going to crash and burn. But the longer he hangs out with Ted, the more he observes the lasso way, the more convinced he becomes there's something more to see here. There's something more to Ted Lasso's personality, something more to his philosophy of life. Ted Lasso is a holy fool. And that's really my prayer for the eighth graders being confirmed today. It's my prayer for all of us, that more and more all the time, God would help us become holy fools. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. Our theme at Hope this year is the whole Holy Bible in a year. We've challenged ourselves as a congregation. Let's read through this thing from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation. We've got 12 months to do this. This month, we started in on the book of Acts in the Old Testament. If you haven't been reading along with us or you started and then you stopped, this would be a great time to pick it back up again. The book of Acts tells the story of the birth of the church and then the way the church uh, grew and spread all across the Roman Empire in those early decades after the resurrection of Jesus. The book is sometimes called the Acts of the Apostles. And in Acts chapter 9, we are introduced to the Apostle Paul. Paul will end up writing much of the New Testament of our Bibles. This summer, we'll spend a lot of time reading through and preaching through the writings of Paul. For today, I want us to look at this idea that Paul shares with us, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. If you think you are wise by this world's standards, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. Why would Paul write this? What is Paul thinking about when he writes this? It seems to me in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Paul is suggesting we need to reevaluate much of what we think about life. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus says to us, we believe in a God who suffers. We are going to put our faith and trust in a God who wins a victory by dying. And if that is really what we believe, that should make us take a step back and re-examine everything. Are there ways that I am living my life? Are there ways that I am viewing the world that initially, at first glance, I might think, this is the wise way to go, but eventually I discover there's actually something foolish about living life this way? And is the vice versa true? Are there things that initially at first glance I think, well, this is foolish, but the longer I kind of hang out in that space, I find myself discovering some wisdom in this particular way of life. Paul says, you need to become a fool to be truly wise. Tish Warren is an Anglican pastor. She's a best-selling author. She writes an op-ed uh, in the New York Times that deals with faith and life. In one of her recent op-eds, she was writing about the spirituality of this TV series, Ted Lasso. And particularly, she's writing from a Christian viewpoint, how for followers of Jesus, the themes of this TV series can help us as we live a life of faith following after Jesus. And part of what she's saying is Ted Lasso re represents a religious archetype. Uh, you've heard of characters in books or in movies who uh, maybe are examples of Christ figures, uh, they live their life in such a way that you can see uh, Jesus in the way they're living, the sacrifices they're making, the way they're loving, uh, priorities of their life, that sort of thing. She's not suggesting Ted Lasso is a Christ figure, but a different type of religious archetype that's popular in Russian Orthodox spirituality, something called the Eurodivy. 
And the Eurotavi is Russian for the holy fool. In a book you're going to want to put on your Christmas list for this year, Holy Fools in Byzantium and Beyond, a Russian historian named Sergei Ivanov takes 500 pages to show us different places in church history, in culture, and in the arts where the holy fool shows up and teaches us some important lessons. You can have the book for the low, low price of $220. I didn't know that they sold books that cost that much. It's probably because they only sell five of them, and that's the only way they can cover the... Anyway, um, instead of having you read the book, let's trust Tish Warren has read it, and the description or definition of a holy fool that she writes about in this op-ed I want you to think about. She writes, holy fools dwell in ordinary secular life, but they approach that life with completely different values. Rejecting respectability and embracing humility and love, holy fools are so profoundly out of step with the broader world that they appear to be ridiculous. And yet they teach the rest of us how to live. So again, as you are reading through the book of Acts this month, watch for ways that the holy church, uh, the, the growing church, is acting like a holy fool. Look for the ways they are profoundly out of step with the broader world. Look, look for the ways they refuse to go against the flow, the ways they are in the world, but they are not of the world. Initially, at first glance, the, the early church and those first followers of Jesus, their way of life was so countercultural that it was easy for everybody else to look at them and tease them, call them names, uh, discount them. But these early Christians were so convinced the Jesus way of life was the best way of life that they remained committed to living and relating to one another according to the way of Jesus in ways that caused other people to look at them as foolish. But again, it didn't take very long. Over the course of just 300 years, Christianity went from very few followers to being the, the, the popular most uh, number of people practicing that religion in the world. Over time, people saw that these fools were actually living in very wise ways. The confirmation program here at Hope is three years long, a sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade. And at the end of the eighth grade year, if you want to be confirmed, you can come to our student ministry and not be confirmed. You're welcome to do that. But if you want to be confirmed, we ask those eighth graders to write a statement of faith. You've been listening to us tell you what to believe for three years. Now we're asking you, what do you believe. It, Jesus does the same thing with his disciples. They're following him for quite a while before Jesus says to them one day, who do people say that I am? And they've got some answers. But then Jesus brings it a little closer to home. Who do you say that I am? And that's kind of what the faith statement is all about. What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about living a life of faith? And so on Wednesday night, Emily was telling you it was faith statement night. And the eighth graders uh, got together, and in front of their peers and family members, they read their statements of faith. It's a real sweet and holy culmination of the three years of, of Power Life, confirmation ministry. So all of the um, eighth graders write really important things in their statements of faith. I'm going to read to you part of Reese Wagner's statement of faith because it lines up with this idea of holy fools. Reese writes, my faith isn't just saying I am a believer, 
It is being obedient to God's commands and being an example of him to others through my thoughts, words, and actions. Faith is letting my head knowledge sink into my heart and guide me in every decision I make. One of my favorite Bible verses is Romans 12, verse 2, which says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Reese continues, I like this verse because it shows that your life should be through God's lens and not from the lens of the world. The world might say that you are weak and not enough, but in God's eyes you are strong and enough. In those situations where I feel like the world around me wants to make the popular choice instead of God's choice, I have to trust that God knows what is best for me. And Reese concludes with these words, It is sometimes hard to put God first when I am in certain situations, but I know that God is always with me and will help me make the right decisions that align with his will. It's a pretty good description of the life of a holy fool. And Reese is right. It is difficult. It is hard to keep God first, our number one priority, all the time in every situation of our life. But luckily, uh, help is on the way. This is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Read it out loud with me. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. One more time. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. These are the words of Jesus after his resurrection, before he ascends back into heaven. He's gathered together the disciples. He's telling them to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit because when it happens, you'll receive power. If you're going to live a life where you are not uh, conforming to the patterns of this world, a life where you are growing in obedience to God and thought, word, and action, a, a life where more and more all the time you're able to make the wise decision even if it isn't a popular decision. None of us have the power on our own to live that kind of life, but Jesus says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you that will transform the way you live your life. Jesus is talking about this the last week of his life. He's predicting his death. He's predicting his resurrection. The disciples don't like this. They're confused. Trying to help them out, Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to leave you all alone. I'm going to send help for you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And that happens in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Acts chapter 2, it's the day of Pentecost. So it's one of the high holy days for the people of Israel. And people have gathered in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire. And the Holy Spirit gets poured out. And there are great crowds of people who are eyewitnesses of this event in history. And as is always the case, there are some people who are amazed by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And there are other people who are skeptical of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So Peter stands up, and Peter tries to say, as best as he understands what's going on, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel from the Old Testament. God speaks to the Old Testament prophet Joel, and if you keep going to the next slide, this is part of what uh, God says. I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. God says, I'll pour out my spirit even on my servants, men and women alike. And so what the Bible tells us about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that it's for everyone. It's for young and old. It's for men and women. As you keep reading through the book of Acts, you'll see it is for insiders and outsiders, Jews and Gentiles. It's for people that you might put in the category of ordinary and people you might put in the category of extraordinary. I'll pour out my spirit upon 
all people, God says. Everybody say all people. So the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it leads to radical unity. If it's for everyone, if it's for all people, one of the things that you will see it doing as you read through uh, Acts, you'll see groups of people who have walls of division and they've been separated for generations, for centuries. They don't want to have anything to do with each other. They dislike each other strongly. And then the power of the Holy Spirit shows up and it brings about radical unity. The other thing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit does, another thing it does, is it brings about radical humility. Think about it. If the Holy Spirit is a gift for all people, then I cannot use this gift to prop myself up and uh, to convince myself that I'm better than anybody else. If the gift is for all people, then I just use it to lift others up, uh, maybe especially those who think the gift might not be for them. As she is writing about the holy foolishness of Ted Lasso, Tish Warren says, when everyone else seems to be carried along by the powerful riptides of ambition, vanity, fame, jadedness, and contempt. And I just stop there for a second. Do you ever find yourself being pulled along by this kind of current in our culture? Do you ever fear that for your children or for your grandchildren? Do you ever see that in yourself or in others? When everyone else seems to be carried along by the powerful riptides of ambition, vanity, fame, jadedness, and contempt, when that is the water we are swimming in, the cultural water we're swimming in, it startles us when someone swims upstream against the current. And that's a big part of what Ted Lasso does. Uh, part of the reason he is so lovable is because of his humility. He's always putting the needs and wants of others ahead of his own needs and wants. And it is startling to his team. It is startling to his boss, Rebecca. It is startling to the press. They don't know what to do with Ted Lasso, but Ted just keeps on being Ted. He keeps on giving uh, Nate the Great, the kit man, uh, more and more responsibility, more and more power to make plays and put together game plans. And he gives Nate credit when the team does well, which is not very often. They're awful. Uh, they get relegated at the end of season one. They're no longer part of um, the English Premier League. Throughout the course of season two, they make their way back to the Premier League, and Nate gets hired by Rebecca's ex-husband to be the coach of the competition, a, uh, a rival soccer team. As season three begins, there's a press conference, and Nate, speaking at the press conference, blasts Ted, just slams him, makes fun of him, makes fun of the team. And Rebecca is watching, and she is really upset. She wants to find Ted because he's going to have a press conference, and, and she wants him to punch back. But she can't find Ted. Looks on the practice field. They're supposed to be practicing. They're not practicing. Ted is taking them on a field trip to tour the sewers of London. He thinks there's an object lesson in this that's going to help the team uh, come together. When Rebecca finally finds him, she is upset. Her competitive juices are boiling over. She's super competitive, especially when it comes to her ex-husband, Rupert. And she wants Ted to fix things. Take a look. Hey, boss. Where were you this afternoon? Oh, I took the fellas on a little impromptu field trip. Yes, to a sewer, Ted. I know. Everyone knows. And you're upset that I didn't invite you? No, Coach Lasso, I'm upset because the team that I own is projected to finish last this season. No, yeah, I can see your point, yeah. Did you hear what Nathan was saying about you? Yes, ma'am. And are you planning on addressing that? No, ma'am. 
Everyone is laughing at us, Ted. At you, at our team, at me. Rupert is laughing at me, Ted. And I am begging you, please, fight back. Yeah, Sarah. Hey, I like the new hair color. Thank you. You do it just for fun or are you going through a breakup? Both. Yep, oh, I get it. What you got? Coach, how are you feeling about the unanimous opinion that Richmond will be relegated again at the end of the season? Mm, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Expectations for us are as low as a rattlesnake's belly button, huh? <laughs> but hey, we got 38 chances to prove all them folks wrong, though, right? Yeah. And my hopes are as high as a giraffe's top hat. Uh, next question. And if it is, why is a giraffe wearing a top hat? Don't ask me, man. Go ask a giraffe. <laughs> Coach. Yeah, Marcus. Mark Sadabaya, the Independent. Grad's on the new gig. Thank you. What do you got for me? Do you have any response to the comments made earlier today by your former assistant coach, Nathan Shelley? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> I mean, he came and got us, didn't he? No doubt about that. <laughs> hey, but that's Nate the Great for you. You know, he's the same way on the pitch. You know, he'll find the tiniest little weakness in a team and just want to attack that. Yeah. I mean, uh, he's a junkyard dog, man. And smart. They're real lucky to have him over there at West Ham. I wish him the best of luck. Rebecca wants Ted to fight back. They started it. They hit us first. Now let's hit him back and let's hit him even harder. Instead, Ted plays the role of the holy fool. He fights back with kindness. He fights back for cheering for the competition. And as that scene keeps playing out, you see the way uh, Ted's actions start to have an impact on the people who are listening to him and observing him. You start to see that instead of thinking Ted's response is a foolish response, they see that really is the wise response. It changes the way Rebecca is thinking about things. Uh, it, it changes the way the press is thinking about things. And the response of the public on social media, it just blows up. Uh, his response goes viral. They start referring to him as Ted Classo instead of Ted Lasso. Jesus says in Acts 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. The Holy Spirit gets poured out at the beginning of chapter 2. And by the time we get to the end of just the second chapter of this book, we get a description of a brand new community that the power of the Holy Spirit has formed. Now, let me read this description of the early church to you. Acts chapter 2, I'll start in verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Power of the Holy Spirit gets poured out and it creates this new community of holy fools, a community that is marked by radical unity, radical humility, radical generosity, radical devotion, 
radical love. I think this new community is also marked by radical silliness. When when the Holy Spirit first gets poured out, some of the uh, critiques of Peter and those who were filled with the Spirit, oh, they're just drunk. And Peter says, drunk? It's nine o'clock in the morning. It's too early to be drinking. There's some silliness at the heart of the gospel community. And I think it's one of the things missing in our church. We don't know that it's okay to laugh when we come together for church. And God's trying to help us maybe take ourselves a little less seriously. At Hope, that's one of the things we say. We try not to take ourselves seriously, but we take our mission and we take our vision. We take Jesus very seriously. One of the things you uh, see in that description of the early church is there's uh, this flow from large group gatherings to small group gatherings back to large group and this kind of back and forth. On Friday night, I was with a small group of people who've been at Hope longer than I've been at Hope. And as we were hanging out together, we had, you know, shared some stories, conversations of when Hope was getting started and the different ways that we were serving and the joy that we had as more and more people started uh, coming to this church as the power of God's Spirit was, was growing this church and building this church. Lots of joy, lots of celebration, and there were lots of other kinds of times for that group as well. I remember in the spring of 2009, my best friend Dan's wife died from cancer, and this group of people gave money to my wife and me so that we could buy airline tickets to fly uh, to Oregon where my friend lived so we could be with him after the death of his wife. I remember a couple years after that, one of the members of this uh, group uh, was exercising, had a sudden brain aneurysm, died in his early 40s, just tragic. And this group, in radical ways, came together to love each other and support each other and grieve with one another. This is not a perfect group of individuals. They annoy each other from time to time. They have conflicts that they have to work through, but this is an example of what does it mean uh, to be a small group of holy fools who are part of a larger group of people that we call a church. This large group, small group flow, it's at the heart of everything we do here at Hope. It's at the heart of uh, Power Life and Ignition, our ministry to students. On Wednesday nights when the students come to this church, The initial thing they do is they meet together in a large group and they play silly games and laugh. And then they worship in song. They hear a a talk that opens the scriptures to them and then they get into small groups to figure out how do we apply what we're reading in this book to the living of our life in middle school, in high school, in our families, whatever the case may be. It's good for middle school and high school students and it's good for adults as well. I know it's just the first weekend of May, Uh, And we had a couple of days this week. It actually felt like spring, and we're still hopeful we might get some spring before summer starts, and nobody's wanting to rush to that. Certainly no one's wanting to rush to fall. I just want you to know here at Hope Ankeny, your staff is already hard at work making plans for the fall. Nothing that you have to do with it today. I just want to plant a seed that when the fall gets here, we're going to have plans in place to help you find your group, to help you get connected in a small group of holy fools. Maybe for some of you, it will be becoming a small group leader for Power Life or for Ignition, and you'll be leading a group of middle school or high school students uh, through this kind of process. Maybe for some of you, it'll be getting together with a group of people in a similar kind of stage in life, meeting in their homes during the week so that you can read the Bible together, talk about what you're reading, apply it to your lives, pray for one another, so when life happens, you can rejoice together and you can grieve together, and you can be this community, this new community that's powered by the Spirit of God. You can serve together, and on and on and on. So 
Nothing you need to do with that today. Just planting the seeds that by the time we get to football, by the time we get to the fall, we'll have plans in place for you to, maybe we'll need some, you know, fantasy football small groups. I don't know. Anyway, uh, here's where I want to land the plane today. As you're reading through the description of the early church at the end of Acts chapter 2, here's all the things that they're doing, and, and they're doing it together. It ends with this idea. They're praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Think about it. Initially, there's only 3,000 people uh, after the day of Pentecost in the, in the church. Now, Jerusalem's a, a big city, a lot more than 3,000 people. So there were a lot of people who were not part of the church who looked at the church and thought, that's a good thing, even if I'm not part of it. I'm glad they're in our community. And I think that's a challenge for us as a congregation on a regular basis. We need to ask ourselves, do, do the people around us who may not be a part of this church or any church, do, think, do they think it's good that hope is around? Are we enjoying the goodwill of all the people? It's a question for us as a congregation. It's also a question for you as an individual or as a family. On the street where you reside, do people know that you go to church? Do people know that you are a Christian? Do people know that you're trying to live by faith? And if they know that about you, are they glad that they know that about you? On the street where you live or the classrooms or the hallways of your school and the offices where you work, are you enjoying the goodwill of all the people? There's something about the Jesus way of life that actually leads to that. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit leads to this. In, in Ted Lasso, one more clip. They're forming a small group. Uh, it's a, a men's group. They call themselves the Diamond Dogs. It's Ted and his coaching staff, and then they let in uh, Leslie Higgins, who's the assistant to uh, Rebecca, Ted's boss. And it's mostly silly. But sometimes they talk about important things and in, encourage one another in important ways. One of the main storylines of season two Rebecca hires a sports psychologist who she thinks will help her players play better and will help Ted coach better. Dr. Sharon Fieldstone is her name. And Dr. Sharon is really frustrated by Ted through most of the season because Ted's getting worse. He's having panic attacks more and more frequently all the time. And, and Sharon knows Ted needs to open up. There's things in his life that he needs to talk about, but he refuses to do it. Um, Ted is a holy fool, but sometimes, sometimes his silliness is a defense mechanism because he views vulnerability and openness as foolishness. But eventually, with Dr. Sharon's help and the help of the Diamond Dogs, he starts to believe there's wisdom in a new way, a different way, a better way. So before a big match in that season... He calls the Diamond Dogs together, and he lets them in on what he's been working on. Take a look. And what about if they have a game in their life? Oh, yeah. That's open for them. You good, Coach? Oh, yeah. No, I, I'm just doing some breathing exercises that Doc taught me, that's all. Hopefully it's not stomach problems again. Tell me you didn't eat a prawn cocktail. No, never. Uh, guys, it's time. Here we go. Come on. Hey, hey fellas, hold on a second. Um, I, I need to 
tell you all something. Um, when I left the match against Tottenham, it, it, it wasn't because, uh, you know, my stomach was bothering me. It was because I had a panic attack. I've been having them from time to time as of late, and I'm working on it. But I just want y'all to know the truth. We good? good. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 No, cool, cool. All right. Okay, all right. All right, let's go get them. All right, Richmond on three. Wait. I need to confess something to you. Um, I messed up the time zones on our transfer deadline, which is why we didn't sign up that amazing fullback from Brazil. Michael. It's okay. 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 Yeah. Okay. I'll go. Okay. Okay, here we go. I don't read the scouting reports you guys write. I've lied every time they come up. They're boring and I won't do it. I appreciate that. I pretend to get ideas in the moment, but they're just good ideas I've had for months. I just time them to look spontaneous. It's a good move. Thanks, guys. Thank you. All right, let's go kick their butts. Yeah, butts on three. Works for me, one, two, three, butts! Just to be clear, it's not a family-friendly show, but I think it would be a great uh, show for a small group to watch together and talk about, or uh, date night or that sort of thing. Um, thank you to the production team for editing out everything that needed to be edited out. Uh, I don't know where you find yourself on, I don't know, a couple of different continuums. When you look at your life and the situations that you're going through, maybe where do you put yourself on the continuum of foolish to wise or maybe a continuum of faith where on one end it might be skeptical doubting full of questions not sure what to think or believe and on the other end you're you're all in for Jesus I don't know where you might put yourself on those kinds of continuums but I think one of the things that unites us one of the things we all have in common regardless where we are on those continuums is what Tish Warren writes is sort of her summation of what's going on in this show, Ted Lasso. We are all, in the end, not winners or losers, successes or failures, pure heroes or villains, but people who long to be known, loved, and delighted in. The good news of the Christian faith is there is a God who knows you, who loves you and takes great delight in you in times when you are being foolish and in times when you are being wise.